Have you ever wondered how successful architecture, engineering, and construction companies scale their business? Or have you ever wanted guidance on how to get more growth, wealth, and freedom from your AEC company? Well, then you're in luck. Hi, I'm Will Forat. And I'm Justin Nagel, and we're your podcast hosts. We interview successful AEC business leaders to learn how they use people, process, and technology to scale their businesses. So sit back and get ready to learn from the industry's best. This is Building Scale. Today on the show, we have Pat Whalen. Pat is the founder of Pasker. He is a true thought leader in the tech construction industry. And, and kind of what gives him that ability to be that thought leader is his experience. He ran a GC, a uh, general contracting company, obviously, for 18 years, ran Pasker for 18 years, uh, was able to exit both of those in a positive way. Um, he also has IT support for 10 years under his belt and flooring company for five years as well. He, he kind of does it all. Um, and Pasker, what it is, is a web-based construction software designed to streamline, automate all documentation creation, execution, distribution, and storage for construction building process. Um, now that he's successfully exited both uh, the GC and the software of Pasker, uh, Pat is setting his sights to help others via knowledge share and do a little bit of farming as well as he's uh, bought a new project that he uh, is, seems to be very happy about is what I would say. So uh, with all that said, Pat, welcome to the welcome show. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm trying to unpack everything you said, like uh, the generational divides we talk about. Uh, you yeah. guys got so much information packed in so quiet. I think all those boxes were accurate. Check. Bing, bing, bing. Check, 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 check. Good. I'm, gl I'm glad we're on the same page to start off. That's usually a good way to start the show. So, uh, Pat, tell us a little bit about you. How, you know, how did you get into construction? And then how did how did you decide I'm going to the tech side of construction? Um, you know, just tell us a little bit about the history there and kind of what, what has gotten you to be success, so successful in both those uh, organizations. Yeah, well, first, thank you guys for having me on and, and let me do this. I love the construction industry. I'm super passionate about it. Uh, as I was a boy, I would go out to the farm and watch my, my uncles build barns and stuff. And they wore cool clothes. They, they talked in cool ways. They had cool tools. And there was the smell of an old truck. You know, it was just everything about it was just so enchanting for a, a young boy. And so I was around it early. And uh, obviously, it was easy to just walk onto a construction site and go, you know, I need a job. So I, there's plenty of things to pick up, carry, tote, stack, that kind of thing. So got involved with it very early and was, you know, pretty good at it. It's about problem solving and the people who do construction are what really are so much fun to me. They really have fun with each other. They laugh, they talk, and they then they solve a problem. They build something. I thought it was pretty cool. So uh, I jumped into that because it was what I knew the most about after college and had kids, so I needed to make a, a living, and I thought, well, I'll just go do construction. So it turned into an 18-year career. <laughs> that's fun. So uh, in 2002, right, that's the time frame in which you were selling the the actual construction company and, and getting into tech. What was that transition like? Obviously, you you've been you've been solving problems and, and building things for 18 years. So so tell me about that transition. Well, 2002 is when I actually first started getting the idea of creating a, a software, and so I, I created one to really manage my own construction company. Okay. And uh, I, I I was planning to sell my 
construction company, but I didn't really know what day. And so I was hiring people uh, as possible, you know, heirs to the throne, so to speak. Uh, and I was planning to have a lot of years to kind of vet through that. And so uh, started building it in-house just because I had so much process in place. I was bored. I didn't know what my place was at the company anymore. I didn't really understand what a CEO was. And that was interesting to me. You know, I got president, but I wasn't quite sure about that CEO thing. And so uh, started piddling. I had an in-house IT guy. and We just started piddling around with it. It turned into something pretty powerful. Uh, 2004, I had an opportunity to sell the GC firm to someone and did. And Got to take the software and again, that opened up in the next 18 year career. <laughs> you are uh, a glutton for punishment uh, in the entrepreneurial world. You won right to the next one. No, no break. Let's, let's build, let's build the next one as we're exiting the two years end of the GC. That's awesome. Well, <laughs> foolishly, foolishly, I thought it would, I would go into something that would be less stressful than construction. You know, I didn't realize I was going into something that, hardly ever worked at the time. And so uh, the people were mad at all the time. So it was, it was just an ignorance choice that turned out to be a pretty good choice in the long run. You know, as a serial, oh, yeah. I mean, you, you definitely would be labeled as a serial entrepreneur. Uh, and you've had, I mean, you've had two babies that have grown up. <laughs> so uh, uh, was it only in 2002, at the end of uh, when you were basically exiting your GC, that when you really had that idea that last year, or was there already something beforehand, you know? No, I, there was something beforehand. You know, one of the things I had so much inconsistency with was, was bidding. And so, you know, translating a bid to a proposal to contract. So I, I really started trying to solve for that with Excel earlier than that. Uh, and of course, the IT person, you know, become an expert in Excel, which he did. And we created an Excel and then accessed the Microsoft database, not knowing that if you get more than two people on it, it crashes and start over. That's when it really started boiling into, I need real software people. I need real programmers. Uh, this, this has been real fun. But if I'm going to do this, I got to have people that actually know what they're doing. So it was a longer process for sure. No, definitely. So obviously you're a huge technology believer. You, that, that's one thing that we've discovered, obviously talking to you, Pat. So, um, you know, we believe people, process, and technology is the way to scale a business um, wholeheartedly here at Building Scale. And you're heavy on technology. You're a true, true believer. So how do people fit into that, uh, into your companies? Yeah, you know, for us, it it's like anything else. It's it's educating people on why, and you know what the expected results will be, and uh, you know I don't know that I had to have those perfect or exactly right as much as is get a team buy into that it was it was of value, and so you know that's was step one was getting people to help me not only agree it was valuable but to help me design it in a better way and look at what I was doing. You know, I would interrupt their days and go, hey, look at this. And they would put up with me, but they were always good about going, hey, we're important in this too. And it's about bonuses at the end of the year. And that helped with the buy-in. <laughs> Money does that for some reason. I'm not sure why, but it, it motivates people quite frequently uh, is, is what we've seen. Um, 
okay. So uh, one of the one of the things and bonuses, good point here to the money, right? So one of the things technology, a lot of people get scared of technology is like, hey, this is gonna, I'm not gonna have a job because technology is gonna take my job. So can you talk about that and and obviously the fears that people have, but then how it how it actually works, how technology really works when you start implementing into a company. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that, you know, you realize is it frees up capacity to focus on weak spots that you didn't know even know were there. You know, it's kind of like if you paint the hall in your house, you suddenly realize the room next to the hall needs painting too. And you didn't know it until you painted the hallway. It, it's that same kind of effect of you start introducing it and every office, everybody that's ever started a company has some people that came in early with them that they just love, they've depended on, they've grown up together. They have a relationship that's deeper than work, even if they don't socialize. It's a deeper bond. And so suddenly technology, the lesser skilled positions, they can be afraid of it because we're talking about moving paper. And so that's typically been done by people manually. And uh, it's just understanding that there's opportunity to repurpose towards weak spots uh, that are real easy, like rental equipment and construction, you know, always lost money being able to take that person and go, hey, create a process to make this not happen anymore through the receptionist was, it's a, just having people believe the fact that we're not trying to get rid of people. We're trying to be effective when a recession comes, we want to be able to get through the recession and we may have to downsize, but this is about getting better as a whole, not, not getting rid of people completely. That makes sense. That makes sense. And um, I know one of the one of the things that we talked about a lot was hiring um, through the generational differences. Obviously, you have um, boomers now are kind of not becoming the the only owners uh, of companies. Now you see Generation X coming in and even millennials kind of coming in. Um, so what I mean, what have you seen on those generational differences of like hiring those that are younger than you? Well, we had to do it with the tech company, especially, uh, you know, in order to be relevant, I need, I was the only boomer. Uh, and we had, you know, a third Gen Z or Gen X, and then we had the millennial third, and then the, the Gen Z, we even had that group working with us. And so uh, you know, just watching the difference in all three of those was, was fascinating. You know, the, that Gen X was kind of that generation of just, we just want to fit in. Tell us what our job is. You know, we just want to fit in. We want to kind of disappear. It seemed like they were just—they didn't quite understand where they were strong. But millennials, boy, they—they they knew exactly what their path was, their passion was, what they hated, and what they liked. And so, uh, you know, that and then that next generation Z, my gosh, they just consume information so fast. And then, uh, you know, they. They're not very process driven, which that was a hard one for me. You know, they, they don't like process. They don't like hierarchy, flat org charts, those kind of things. And so we just kind of had to come to Jesus, love each other up meeting and say, hey, can all of us meet in the middle somewhere? And so because we're going to have an org chart, but maybe we could say we won't track your PTO days. We don't care. It's just PTO, you know. So you, you offer different carrots to each side as opposed to one side going, we demand you come all the way to our side. Interesting. So, uh, you know, obviously millennials specifically, they get a, they get a rap and uh, Gen Z is starting to get not necessarily the best <laughs> reputation when it comes to in the, in the professional setting of, 
of things. Um, so there's some, you know, I guess scientists that study the ge different generations and there's a divide with millennials, the millennials and the megalennials, right? So the, those that feel stuck or, you know, don't have their place and then um, the, the megalennials feel like they do have more of a control of their financial stability and purpose in life and things like that. So uh, when we were talking, you had mentioned that you felt that the millennials that are in construction, they, they're the go-getters. Those are the ones that are the, the I feel like I have more control. Uh, what, you know, what's, the, what's the theory there? What, why, why did you see that or why do you think you saw that so much? Well, because there's, there is no time to wait and think and ponder and sit and construction, you know, the schedule is the schedule and you got to get problems solved. And there's a lot of money in construction too. So that's, that's the big thing that people have discovered recently is, you know, this idea that construction people are working and they're barely getting by. Well, you go to the lake, the biggest boat is owned by somebody in construction. <laughs> and so it, that kind of perception changed and now there's college that, college degrees in construction science that you can get a master's degree all the way through in. And so that whole idea of, you know, as a pathway, as a career, uh, you know, has changed the perception of it being a very blue collar career. And uh, it is blue collar. And that's what makes it beautiful. It's blue collar and white collar and you must get along and there can be no us and them. And uh, that teamwork element goes all the way back to playing sports, you know, love sports. You got to have a great team. The Can best team wins is what they say, right? Okay. You know, uh, you got me thinking a little bit. When you're talking about, you know, the different generations, what have you seen that's different? How do they, I'm sure you've seen even the interview process. Uh, how is the interview process different? Are they asking different questions? Are they looking... What are their attitudes, you know, towards the interview process? What does that look like in, you know, compared to, let's say, your generation? Yeah, I would say, you know, if, if you go to the Gen X, it's just traditional. They found you somewhere. They, you do the interview. Uh, you go to the millennials. Uh, it's, it's a different thing. They found you. They researched you. And especially when you get to Gen Z, man. They're going to know more about you. They're going to talk about things you forgot you even did. And so, you know, they go out and they really research, is this some place I'm even interested in interviewing with? And the millennials are going to do that, uh, you know, taboo thing of asking. It's not unusual. I didn't find it unusual in the very first interview to hear the question, you know, well, what does the job pay and what is the benefits? As a boomer, you didn't ask that question until you were signing the forms to fill out your w-9 and those kind of things <laughs> so it was very different uh, they had different questions uh they did research they want to know what is what do you want me to do exactly the the wishy-washy mission statements and purpose statements that nobody ever listens to and they put away and nobody in the company can recite those won't do uh when you're hiring millennials in my experience it, they want to know specifically i don't care about all that what do you want me to do that will make you successful? And then you get to later, what's the bigger mission? Am I willing to be passionate about that? Millennials bring this unbelievable passion. And that's a good thing. I mean, they, they really, when they're passionate and they're in, they're in, but you have to get over this idea. Well, I've got my project manager for the next 20 years. Nope. You got your project manager for three years, maybe four. And so learn how to win like a, football coach does, you know, in three, four year increments and then rebuild. 
So you got to constantly be in a state of recruiting. Uh, you're never done recruiting. Someone has to be doing that actively uh, all the time. And you just have to understand, you know, the questions are going to be different because they have different concerns. They're going to live so much longer than we did. So the millennials who maybe aren't the megas and they're starting later, you know, there's, their career is going to be into their late 70s, where ours was into our late 60s. And so uh, is that a bad thing? I don't know if it is or not. I guess we'll find out. It's just it's just what is. And in business, it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's fair. It doesn't matter whether it's right. What matters is, so what? What's your response to that? And so um, it's all about deciding what's important for you as a business owner, what you can tolerate, because they're going to they're going to push that boundary if you're a boomer hiring millennials and you're going to have to make that decision. But I found it to be really fun. I grew a lot. I learned a lot. Uh, the people I would have never sold Pasker without a millennial group of people who pushed it over that age for me. So, I, you know, my experience was just grow up, Pat, get over it. You've been a business person a long time. And so. The, the gospel you preach of be change. <laughs> well, it's your time to change and what you perceive is how business runs. So it was, it was fun for me, actually. That's one. It's refreshing to hear. Uh, I, I, uh, you know, I am in the millennial generation. That is where I sit. So it's very refreshing to hear that like you as a boomer are saying like, you realize that you figured it out. Like, you know, it's different you think of different things have a little bit different ways of looking at it, but like, that's the way you get to push Pasker over the, over the line where, you know, it benefits everybody. Like it just comes into, you know, finding that common ground, you know, don't go all the way to my side. I'm not going all the way to your side, but we found a common ground. And that is, you know, that's how the beauty is made, right? Like that's the, that's the thing. So that's awesome. Um, we're an EOS company. It's about migration. And one of the things that we truly believe is right people, right seat. Um, you had said something to us uh, that you you said you learned. I believe it was at a conference about having one hat and one seat. Tell tell us about that. What is, how how is that impactful to your company? Well, it it really is. I, you know, I, I had the great privilege of going to a conference and hearing a speaker talk, and uh, it was a millennial who had about four businesses it sold and great success. And I got the chance to just speak one on one one to him and. He's the one that said that. And I asked him that question specifically, you know, what's the one thing you would tell me that I need to get done to succeed with Pasker and without blinking one hat, one seat. And uh, when I went back and I started looking at it, you know, the idea of multitasking, that you can do that well, equally well, I've never met anyone that that's true. One, one thing gets better than the other, and that's just the way it is. The other gets drug along with it. And so you get rid of that Peter principle idea that, you know, I'm going to keep doing things to the highest level of my inefficiency until it breaks. And then I'll go get somebody. You just do that earlier. You just realize you're already broken, but you just don't know it yet. And uh, you know, I just, it was very powerful for me to understand, get an accountant, quit doing the accounting. You're not saving any money. Your company needs you to be a visionary. Your company needs you to be, painting this idea every single time of what our core values are, why we're here, why this matters and what we're doing. And that, then when you're doing accounting, you can't be doing that. And so uh, it was huge for me and, and worked, obviously. <laughs> it changed. 
uh, so you said it was huge for you. What? Give us some examples. Uh, give our listeners some examples of like the changes that you made uh, and the impact that you saw by making by making those changes. Give us kind of the before and after. Yeah, one of the things I realized. Okay, if it's one hat, one seat, you know. What, what level of person can I afford? I have to sit down and start going, you know, I know I want, you know, secretariat here, and but I, I surely don't want Mr. Ed. And so where can I buy in between those two points? And it forced me to, to really sit down and go, who is the key person in this? And so is there one person that has to be the star and they have to be fed and they have to be, uh, you know, whatever the prima donna they can be all those things but we got to have this person and understanding who that person is uh, was a big deal and for me uh, as odd as it may sound i realized at this particular time we needed the best ui ux person we could get uh, product and writing code and command line code and all these things in technology you need some stars uh, but it, it, what it looks like and how I feel when I get through using it is really going to be the one thing that makes people pick you over somebody else when you all say you have the exact same thing. And that's where the industry's gotten to. Everybody says they have the same thing. So um, you had mentioned the secretariat compared to the Mr. Ed analogy. You know, we talked about, you know, um, and this was kind of in, in, in the, the process piece, right? Because it's like, if you want to win the Kentucky Derby, do you stroll out there with Mr. Ed and hope for the best? <laughs> and so t- tell us, one, where did you learn that analogy? Because I, I find it amazing. But then on top of that, like, explain more about that, that concept. And that's just kind of, when you spend money on anything, people, technology, whatever it is in your business, you know, are, are you trying to win the Kentucky Derby? Or are you trying to show up, right? Uh, t- just tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I learned it from making the mistake of hiring potential uh, as opposed to experience. And so our, our true star, you know, someone who even can do it, even though maybe they didn't have years of experience. Your, your first reaction as a business owner is conserve cash, you know, try and stay profitable. Uh, and so hire, let's hire potential because they're a little more cost effective than the person who has done it. And so getting over that and understanding how costly that was to me, because when you hire potential, they're only, unless they really are a star, they can only grow to your highest level because you're, you're the one teaching them. You're the one showing them what to do and how to get there. And so they only get to where you're at. And you need to hire someone who's better than you are at that and can do it without you because the only exit out of a company is to have a way when people come and vet you to go, well, take Pat completely out. Is it functional? Not only is it functional, we can get a better Pat and it's even better functional. That's that's still waiting to happen. (laughs) So you're actually, this is great because you're tying into something that we want to talk about, which is uh, opportunity cost, right? Uh, what you're really talking about is opportunity costs and hard costs. Um, so uh, give us some cost savings around. So first, what is it, right? Uh, because it was a huge part of Pasker, um, and what you had to kind of talk about 
with other and really educate a lot of other uh, other people on. And then uh, how did you view it or how did your you change? Because it wasn't always like this, right? So why don't you talk, talk a little bit about that as well as that transition into how you sort of evolved? Yeah, you know, I would say the first star hire that I made that I realized how impactful this was, was a controller. I was fortunate to find a controller who had been a part of the software startup that got sold and got sold to a you know publicly held company. And he was the controller at all the way through that and even in the division at the publicly held company. And so once I got him, I didn't have to tell him what to do. If you're a small company, you don't have a mentoring program. If you're a large general contracting firm, they have, you know, for a year, you're going to sit under this person. You're going to be trained to do this. It's a process. And they have the capacity and the girth to do that. But hundred million dollars and below in construction is still medium to small contractor. And so I just simply don't have that depth and that, that, that kind of staff. And so when I hired that first person and I didn't tell them at all what to do, I just told them we want to sell this company in five years and I need processes and, and it locked down so that it can easily be vetted by an outside group. And so I could have, waited through that but my focus would have had to have been on that so heavy because having that financial piece if you're a software company or a construction company that is true is going to be huge in the confidence factor for whoever would be looking at you in, in, a, in a different way and so it just changed everything as you start vetting them if you don't get that person within that hiring is so frustrating you know, especially in today's market, you have that person, you think that's the person before you get back to them, they've accepted a job somewhere else. So this cycle of old hiring of we're going to give you, you know, five interviews, and you're going to scenario play, and you're going to do all this. There's still companies who can do that because they're so big, so well known. But for guys like a Pasker or a construction company that's a smaller level, if you find somebody you like, you better have a process that's fast, you better be able to make an offer quickly. Uh, and when I say quickly, if you found talent today, if they're really talented, they're not out, it's like buying a house. They're not out there more than a month unless they wanna be. And so, you know, you can't drag it out like you used to. You, you've got to change how you're going to hire. You need to hire, have whatever questions you need answered in session one. <laughs> and you need to be talking about what it looks like to come on in session two and, and closing that loop. It cannot be that on and on interview process. Okay, so uh, I want to also tie in so opportunity costs and hard costs, um, and specifically around paperwork. Right, this was something that Pasker. I mean, that was kind of your whole idea for Pasker. Maybe talk about that specifically, sure. uh, and, the, and the cost of a person, and then how you applied it to your company. Yeah, you know, one of the questions I would ask people when I would try and get them to let me challenge them about my Excel spreadsheet that I love and technology was, you know, do you know what it costs to do a single subcontract? Well, I get a blank stare and of course they didn't know. None of them ever knew. And so do you know what it costs when the subcontractor brings a bill into your office? And it was easy for me to paint a scenario 
to the person of going, okay, think about that person that brings the bill. 15 minutes at the receptionist. They get by that person to project manager hall. If you got four of those people, it's 15 minutes again, they end up in accounting. These are your highest paid in people who are being interrupted for 15 minutes. And so at the end of that, I brought a bill to your office. I took two and a half hours of productivity out of your office collectively. And I did it for people that are doing really important things, big numbers, transposing one is just really bad. And so it was just that one time in motion study that I did, uh, you know, the opportunity of we're spending all this time here, that means there's no possible way we can go do something to grow or we can go do something to get better because the time is finite. You know, you, it's, it's not an unlimited resource. So you use it and it's gone and you cannot do something else with it. So really, really understanding not just what is your hard cost, but what did it cost you to continue to do it this way? Most people that I ran into, I might even say, oh, I don't remember anybody that they would stood out to me. I don't remember anybody who really knew or had factored in in construction opportunity cost because we build it into the bid. We know we're going to lose some money in some places and that's okay. We built it in anyway. It's a cost of doing business, but that's changed a lot now with technology because we can see in depth, real good key performance indicators uh, early as opposed to after it's over with and we go, well, that was bad. We'll, we'll do better on that next time. So the opportunity costs or the hidden costs, hidden soft costs of doing business, right? So perfect example of uh, trying to get, uh, trying to get the bill, you know, sub comes in and he wants to get paid. Uh, but except that he already knows that he's going to get paid later on, but he spends, 50, you know, spends a few minutes, interrupts accounting and the, the point being is that the interrupt also the interruption of work, right? So that on a task or on a, on a project, on a set of tasks, and then um, just human psychology, because of the interruption of work, it takes, you know, another 10, 15 minutes to sort of get back into the flow of things or wherever they were at. So a five minute conversation turned into 20 plus minutes of cost, right? To, to that person. So yeah, their time was full. Yes, they were doing something the entire time, but task switching or what, whatever. So to, so to your point, um, the multitasking or not really being able to task, but single, very fast task switching doesn't really help anyone. So uh, what you're saying is that uh, the manual costs of doing paperwork uh, and really there's a whole bunch that is not being accounted for and they don't know how to how to account for it. But you, because you know the industry, you were able to actually say, give a story that's very relatable as to what's happening and go, hey, this is how technology could solve those issues. You just didn't even think about that those were the, those were issues. Because no one thinks that's an issue, right? No one thinks, well, no one was not working. There was only a five minute interrupt, interruption. The reality is, the person that came into your office, it wasn't a, it wasn't a 15 minute interruption. It was two and a half hours that was taken away from the company at high dollars. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the biggest surprises to me was, is they would never allow the field to sit down like that. And those are typically not as expensive as salaries. 
but you come into the office and for whatever reason, it was just generally accepted. We have to do this. And so we're going to, we're going to lose this money. And we know that. So that was an interesting, your most expensive salaries you're going to let be your most inefficient workers. You know, I hope people are listening to this nugget here about the cost of essentially the administrative workforce, the ones that are actually helping the field out uh, and supporting the, the field operations because they're way more expensive, right? They're generally six-figure salaries. This, uh, the PMs that aren't even on site, right? Uh, the soups, they, they go on site, but if, they're, but if they're in the office, right, doing their administrative work, or working with other people administratively, there's a huge cost. There's a huge time cost, soft cost that is going into that. So, um, and paper, so what we call paperwork. So, tell me about the argument around. Well, my guys are still working out there. Why do I care about your technology, or why should I? Why should I worry about this? Right? Because there's a lot of people that are like, hey, I can. They can still hammer away. They can still they can still frame, right? Because they're not. Talk to talk to us a little bit about that. About the people that think that technology they shouldn't be spending money on technology. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I did a, a focus group and asked people about technology. We 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 were a year into COVID, year and a half into COVID when I did this virtually, and uh, I was really shocked at the entire room. I asked them, you know, what's something good? come out of this? What is something that you've done that's, that has improved your life? I was not expecting the answer of being technology, uh, 100% in the room. Uh, and they were things as simple as, you know, our church website, now we can give our offering. The pickup line for the kids at school has been automated to keep distance. The driver's list license testing center texts me now and says, your appointment's in 30 minutes and it's on time, which you can't. On and on and on, and, the, and then, then that, the question of, you know, well, you know, did it work all the time? No, it did not work all the time. How much did it work? About 85% of the time, I felt like it was good. And so how did that make you feel? Well, it was frustrating, but the technology itself felt it made me feel empowered. It made me feel like I was in control. There's all these great expressions of how it felt. And so getting past that curve and learning just like anything, just like any tool, it will break eventually. There'll be something wrong with it. It's always frustrating when your shovel handle breaks and you gotta go get another shovel, but you don't just go, I don't never get another shovel again because the shovel handle broke. And so getting people to understand the technology glitched. Well, my choice is not gonna be to never get any technology again because it broke. No, you guys still have a shovel. so. We're getting over that and finally understanding, getting a little grace and mercy for the tech folks and going, hey, you know, why did you change? We hear this over and over and over again. Why did you change this page? It was perfect. It was beautiful. You don't, I don't see anything you accomplished in changing this page. Well, you would have seen something accomplished if somebody had taken your site down and we, the browsers dictate much of the change that we don't have a choice in. So, you know, it's kind of like in a construction term, if you live in an apartment and you leave that morning and you come home and you meet the super of the site and he goes, great news, we put a backflow preventer in the plumbing system today. And you go, why would I care? Because the water worked this morning, it works tonight, 
Well, you care when that water backed up from the sewer into your drinking water because you didn't have the backflow prevent. You can't see it. You don't know what it does. And that security stuff just goes on in the browsers really a lot of times dictates the day-to-day -day little things that change. And, and the, you know, a button that worked yesterday doesn't work today. Why is that? Well, Google changed something overnight. We didn't change it. Google did. We got to respond to it. So that's a big curve that we are, I feel like we're getting past. That, and COVID, I think, really pushed that along. Just doing a virtual meeting or a podcast, you know, at the beginning of this, you had technical difficulties. Did we just go, we're not going to do this, not have the meeting? Oh, we laughed, just got it done. It's, I think people are all everywhere is getting to that spot where they go, well, I haven't found anything yet that's perfect. So this ties in with really kind of two types of people. Uh, and we talked a little bit about this in the pre-interview, but there's, you know, there's the people that are looking at um, kind of construction as a business. And then you had a term uh, of lifestyle contractors versus business contractors. And, you know, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about that? What, what's the difference between the two? What is that? What are their views? And why, why does it matter? Yeah, you know, our main purpose was to provide people with better days. That was, that was a kind of our tagline. We, we're going to provide you with a better day. There's a lifestyle business, and that business says, you know, I want this boat, I want this truck, I want to live in this house. And when I get that, I want to enjoy that. And so technology for that person, I would say, is valuable because you want to go fish more, you want to go on that boat more, we're going to give you time to do that. And that's your lifestyle business. And then there are others who are going, you know, the pinnacle is always going to be raised up because when we get to that pinnacle, we're going to see that next pinnacle and we're going to keep going to pinnacle to pinnacle our whole career because we have this goal of being the biggest uh, and selling someday for, you know, multiple millions of dollars. And so for those people, it's an easier uh, technology sale uh, just because they don't necessarily buy into the marketing pitch of a better day but they, they won't try to defend the undefensible of how long does it take you this way? Empirically, how long does it take you this way? So they're, they're easier to sway. What they're more difficult to get past is either the accounting office or one person who doesn't like one routine. So what's the cost? And again, we're not figuring when we go, what's the cost? We're not figuring in this soft cost that we talked about earlier of opportunity cost. Because if you figure that in, it's a bargain, no matter what you're paying for it typically. And so it's, you got all kinds of things competing for that attention and, and which way you would present it. Go fishing more or turn everybody in your office into having time to be a sales business development type of thing. They can take people to lunch. Construction people don't even have time to eat lunch right now. And so giving them back more time in their day is a better day. And so even a day where you came on to Pasker and you got an error on the software, I would have contended to you, you still had a better day than you would have had without Pasker. Yeah, this was irritating. Yeah, this was bad. But collectively, and your entire day would have been even worse if you'd been doing this manually. So I heard a little bit, but um, 
the difference between lifestyle and business contractors is also, especially when looking specifically through the lens of technology, uh, would you say that one type looks at technology as an asset versus the other one as a cost? Uh, yeah, I don't know that it's, 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 you know, universal across the lifestyle as opposed to I want to grow my business type of contractor. The lifestyle one is not going to, they're interesting. You know, they don't mind paying 90 grand for that truck if that's the way they want to look. And so if they get the idea that that software is the way they want to look, they're on, they're easier, they're in quickly. And they don't have all these bad habits that's been baked into their processes for years. They're, they're more malleable. They're easier to come along to where you want them to come along to be successful. You know, that was one of the biggest things I would sell when I would sell Pasker was to tell people, if you're buying this to make it mesh into your current way, it's going to fail. You need to be buying this with the idea that we're, everything's open for review. We're changing everything. This is the core piece and we're going to work from this core piece out. If you're buying technology for a task, it's not going to work. It's going to work for one person, but it's not going to lift the whole boat. So if you're a lifestyle contractor and you're the only person, it, that's all good enough. You lifted your boat, you can go fishing more. But if you're a company that wants to keep going to the next pinnacle, you need a better metric to start looking at as opposed to does it do this task well? And is this, does this benefit the team? Does this give the offense a better chance, the defense a better chance, and the special teams a better chance? That's what we want. We don't want just the offense to be better because we, we got to keep people from scoring. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you had mentioned task versus process. When you're you're making a task better, or you, you know, you're you're fixing a task in comparison to fixing a process. What are some examples of that? Obviously, process, let's lift the whole team, as you said comparison to tasks more individualistic so what are what are some examples of that in construction yeah bidding has all of these micro tasks that happen in the process of bidding one of those micro tasks for example is just keeping a log of who you've asked to bid and what the response was and so that's a micro task and so you invited you know 10 drywall contractors and none of them replied somebody should know that really early before bid day and what happens is the busier you get because you do good work you do good work you get repeat clients people talk about you give you new clients all of a sudden you get to this critical mass the busier you get what's the thing that starts to not get done the micro task who checked the manual log that somebody replied nobody why not I was too busy getting plans out <laughs> because they can't be without plans. And so the micro task got dropped. You don't know it to be a day and you scramble and find a number and you put it in. Now it's eight months later, it's time to do the drywall and you realize this drywall person left out the whole parapet wall. That's why they were cheap because I, I didn't have time to do my normal micro task. So the problem, seems like it was out here in a contract level we didn't get clarity but the problem really was nobody did this micro task back in bidding that would have caught that earlier and prevented that very expensive mistake way out here process 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 process, process. yeah because <laughs> at the end of the bid process 
there's a proposal package. I mean, that's when the process is finished. The process starts when you have lunch with somebody and they go, will you bid on this job? And you say, yes, that's the start of the process. All these things have to be done in between there, inside of your office and by, you know, in a, it's not unusual to have 200 other offices all having to do the same kind of paperwork you're doing just in a specific discipline. It's the most inefficient industry you could possibly say. 10 plumbers are going to go do the exact same takeoff and present you a bid. Whereas if we would just get out of that box for a little while and we would pay the, the plumbing engineer to provide the takeoff and be responsible for it so that they're giving it to those plumbers and going, price this. You give us your best price and give us suggestions. It would change everything. But you know, changing that hierarchy of going, nope, engineer, you're going to be responsible for this material. You created it. You designed it. You've got technology that tells you every part and piece. You're going to supply that. We're not going to ask 10 people to do the exact same task for one price that we're going to accept. And we wonder why sometimes they don't respond to our bid. It's very, uh, you know, I can't crack that myself, obviously, but it's an industry problem that if we could get past, the bidding part is the most inefficient process you could ever see in your life. So if you can just do what we did, which is capture all those notes, capture all those discoveries, document them without anybody doing anything else for subsequent documents, you have to admit that's better. You just have to, don't you? <laughs> Tell me why you wouldn't. I can't get it. <laughs> I would concur. I, I think it's one of those, um, you know, look at it's black. It's more black and white than I think some people make it um, being. But again, op opportunity or soft loss uh, costs and things like that. I think that those are maybe not as looked at as part of the part of the evaluation process is maybe what happens a, a little yeah. too often. Yeah, and you know, there's there's softwares out there now for construction companies. They they don't know how they're going to vet the software. That's a huge problem. Nobody has time, you know, and they give it to the most unqualified person in the office. The receptionist, you know, the poor receptionist gets to do everything nobody else wants to do. And they go, here's a list of things. Does it have that? And so yeah, she she or he goes and, and checks that out and comes back and says, you know, here's the three. And and they don't understand. Uh, you know, why they're buying, what metric they're going to judge its success by, or what they're trying to accomplish specifically. And that's a big, big deal because it's really simple. And I can, I can clarify it for all your contractors that you'll be listening for. If you're a contractor that does, has a large staff, does very large projects, let's say you do 200 million a year, but that's only four jobs. If you're that contractor, one software off the shelf is not going to work for you because you're so detailed, you're so big, you're of such a girth and size, you're going to need specific softwares for specific things that can integrate with themselves. So obviously I'm talking about a Procore in that, that regard. If you're a contractor though, that does you know, 30 jobs a year and you're just trying to get a handle on that, having multiple softwares to do that, it's not going to help you. It's going to be frustrating your new world, your new way, you're going to bail out before you finish it. You're going to learn only pieces of the software, not the totality of it. 
So clearly, at that point, a red team or a Pasker product is going to serve your needs better because, again, Paskers, which is what I can speak the most to, I always used to tell people, we're the most integrated with ourselves software you're ever going to see. You're never going to get out of our software. We may not be best at this task or that task, but we're best in class of all-inclusive everything. And so knowing what kind of contractor you are should go a long way in understanding which software probably is going to work best for you. That uh, actually reminds me, uh, Will had just uh, submitted an article to Forbes that is going through their editing process. And it's essentially about um, operational truths compared to technology truths, right? So like just because a technology checks a box and says, I do a thing, doesn't mean that that's operationally good for you. Like that, you know, there's some things that are, you know, like as to your point, right, pro core, you know, it, it does all these things and amazing, but if you're a smaller contractor, that may not be the right, you know, that might not be the right path for you because operationally it's, you have different goals or you have different, you know, uh, processes that you have in place that don't actually facilitate the, the use of something like that. So, um, yeah, so that's the, sorry, that kind of just popped in my head right now, where I thought about it. I said, yeah, you know, like just the technology does a thing doesn't mean it's, operationally smart to choose that technology essentially that's exactly right you know if you're like i said if you're big you're going to need that hub that integrates with lots of other softwares like a scheduling software a time card software you know a bidding software because you're going to be that hub where everything is kind of like a traffic cop you know you can come through now no you stop and come through and that hub is really powerful for that but if you don't have the staff i mean do you know how to use all of Word? Do you know how to use all of Excel? <laughs> you know, what do you use? 20% of it, and, you know, bold, underline, bullet point, and that's about where I go with it. And, uh, you know, but the power of what you buy is so much bigger. And so, you know, it's just, it's just a way to get one truth, one time, one place for everybody uh, if you're that kind of contractor. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think most contractors are that kind of contractor. We all want to be that bigger group, and that's the pinnacle we're shooting for. They grew up in a different world and different time, and so you know, it's, I picked out somebody, and when I started my construction company, I went under their sites, I vetted how they did things, I talked to their people because I knew who I was chasing, and I decided I'm going to be that one day, and so I just did what they did to be successful. And so if you want to look at a really successful $100 million contracting firm, what do they do? Well, they software is the basis of everything they do, and they lay their way over that software, and they lean in to that X part of the UI UX, that user experience. They really have time, they have energy, and they have the mood of not being frustrated in their day to lean in to making an experience for their clients, their subcontractors, their employees, across every spectrum of, of your touch, it's just a better day. You know, I'm the boss. I'm not pissed off all day today, you know, because something happened that I didn't know about until it was too late for me to do something about. And so it's really powerful, especially when it's really embraced from the top. And from the top, it's just declarative statement. We are doing this. 
That's so that's a good point. And, and I know you mentioned, you know, the technology needs an amount of, you know, accepted tolerance, right? You need to, there needs to be a tolerance level. So describe what that means to it, like a typical owner of a construction company. Well, it's easy when you tell a contractor, you know, you build a 10 story building, you've got tolerances plus or minus, you know, every 10 feet of whatever it would be, 16th of an inch or whatever. And you go, well, what? It's impossible to build that perfect 90 degree angle, 10 stories high. Everybody gets that. <laughs> and so you have to have tolerance levels within software, I think as well, of understanding of, no, that's not how we'd like to do it. Maybe the old way we did that can do that singular task a little bit faster. But when I hand it off in a team level, then it begins to be a drag, not a plus. And so just really understanding you know, why you're doing this, what's the effect, not on my office, but on your office and your office and your office and the whole team and the offices that work with us that we ask when it's really, really tight and you want subs to really, really want to give you a good price, have really made them a better business. And if you are, you're doing a huge disservice to your clients, to your vendors, your subcontractors and your employees and your own company, if you don't embrace technology today, and, you know, you just can't defend it anymore. It's just too much information out there that's empirical at this point to continue to argue something that's indefensible. And so, you know, if you're going to close up your business in five years and it's just going to be closed and you work for 40 years to build this asset, and you're fine with a zero return on that asset, keep using Excel. You know, you're good. It's a lifestyle business for you that you like, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're a, a, you know, end of millennial 42, 40, whatever it is, and you're coming to power and you've got to make decisions, it's going to be your legacy. It, you're going to go to a company that's embracing the idea that Excel is not the tool you're going to make me to use. And so, you know, if you want good talent, you better have a, a good facility. You better, have, you better have, you know, whatever that is that that can be, you know, I, why do, why do players go to Alabama? Well, you walk into their little complex down there and it's not hard to see why. It's clear when you walk in, we're gonna know your heart rate during practice. We're gonna know your oxygenation levels during practice. They put a monitor, you know, and the whole practice, they'll go, we see you didn't exert yourself on three plays during the practice. They know that. And you know going in, they're gonna get you the pocketbook. That's why you go there. Why am I here? I want the bag of cash. Well, what is it going to take? You're going to buy into our system and our system is, is built to make you successful. That's all you're doing with technology. You're emulating what successful people do in any business. They have a way and that way has produced results and they lean into it really heavy, constantly rebuilding it, constantly changing it. It's never done. When just real quick clarification, you said, you know, how are you building your business, you know, lifestyle versus, and you said something about zero return on your business, right? Were you talking about essentially the sale of the business? Is that what you were talking about? It, it can be the sale, but it also can be just the feeling you get as, as a team, having taken something from here to here. And, you know, it's always measured a lot of times in monetary, you know, last year's bonus was, this year's bonus is, those are easy. But 
there's especially as you move into the millennials becoming dominant in the workforce you know it's how do you make me feel like is it Angie my Lou who says you know they won't remember what you said they'll make they remember how you made them feel and you know it's really true of this next generation that's coming to power which is the millennials they're taking over from you know gen gen x and the, the boomers they're they're ascending that throne and so it's just it's just really really important to make people feel like we did this it's better i don't go home totally exhausted i get to go to the kids soccer game and not feel like i'm getting you know three hours behind that's a powerful feeling for people and that's what technology can bring you can sign a subcontract on your phone watching the soccer game that's freedom <laughs> you know <clears throat> Uh, that uh, that statement is amazing. That uh, you can you can sign the subcontract on your phone while you watch the soccer game. That's freedom. Oh, I love that. I love that. And that's good multitasking. <laughs> so, last question: uh, If you go back in time twenty years, what would you tell yourself? Uh, you know, it's funny. The first thing I would say is get over this idea that I'm set after year one, certainly by year two, get over the idea that I'm saving money by doing multiple things. Move past that as fast as you can. I know when you start up, it's so difficult sometimes and every dollar is so important that it has to be that way, but don't ever get under the false impression that that's efficient or effective. Understand that it has to be temporary. It's kind of like grieving. It's good to grieve, but you have to have a point where you go, I'm not grieving anymore, I'm moving on. And understand that early. Uh, the other thing I would say that's really large in businesses that I've experienced myself in building and growing are the expectations that are out there today that is, I believe are, lead a lot of people to stop before they're really done. Uh, you know, and that expectation that year three, I would be here and I'm not with well, a realistic expectation was never considered. And so I had this expectation. I get here. I'm not there by year five. I'm certainly not at the expectation. I just quit. Well, you're not broke. You got a profitable balance sheet. <laughs> you got a lot of things. Why are you quitting? Because I feel like I failed. I feel like I didn't get there. So set realistic expectations. I'm not a big fan of the big, hairy, audacious goal, you know, the bat. I'm just, I just detest it. I think it's false. I think it's starting a business on a lie that you know you can't do. And everybody just discounts it. It has nothing more than just nothing. And so, you know, I would say back down and go, what can I truly do and create expectations that you will exceed. What does your clients love? I promised you this. I finished two days earlier. How excited are they? Do the same thing. Be kind to yourself. Be gentle on yourself and set expectations that you can achieve. So success does build success. I have experienced that. It is true. There's something about we did this, even if it's little. Build it little BBs at a time. Don't fall into this thing of we only hear about the Facebooks of the world that took off from a dorm room or the Dell that took off from the dorm room and became this. It makes us all think 
we get technology, that's what we're going to do. <laughs> or when we start a company, that's what we're going to do. Those are the unicorns. Those are not the norm. The norm is what I just explained. It's 10 years to build a business where you really turn around and go, wow, how did I do this? You did it by hiring a great team, by not trying to do everything yourself and building off successes by creating goals that are truly attainable, not big, hairy, audacious goals. I love I love the uh, the 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 side step there a little uh, uh, scaling up step there I, I'm about this I, uh, I I I certainly we didn't talk about this at all in regards to different operating models obviously process is really important to you um, so we'll have, maybe we'll have to have you back on Pat to talk about uh, maybe the dis the distaste for scaling up maybe a little bit which is interesting to me um, but you've been amazing. Um, you uh, obviously a wealth of knowledge. Is there anything else you want to share with the listeners? No, I would say uh, again, always, always realize we're having fun. Challenges are not things that you go home and kill yourself about. They're fun, you know. Enjoy that process and savor it because there'll be a day when you get to where I am and you just sold your business and you're wondering what am I going to do all next week. So, <laughs> so. You know, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Don't stick your head to the fence to eat the grass. Just eat the grass on your side of the fence. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is what are you going to do next week is uh, buy some farming tools. Isn't that, isn't that right, Pat? I'm looking for some farming tools, a lot, kind of a little dozer to uh, just go knock some trees down, dig a hole. I don't even know why yet, but while I'm doing it, I think I'll figure that out. That's right. That's just dig the hole. You know, if you dig it, they'll come kind of thing. Maybe we got a baseball stadium in your future. Yeah, all right. Is there a way that uh, people can contact you? Obviously, we'll throw in uh, all of the, the links into the show notes. But is there any way if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, they could? Yeah. You know, I went way out on my thought leadership and thought, what's well, an email I can create that people remember? Mail at patsinbox.com is me. There we go. There I don't we go. have any of the social stuff done yet. I will because I believe it's powerful. I love what you guys are doing. The construction industry needs guys like you doing what you're doing. So I was really thankful to get to be a part of this. It's exciting to me to have people like you out promoting what I think the whole world should realize. Hey, the reason it's air conditioned construction, the reason you're not in the rain construction, the reason you can drive to work construction. So rock on. I love it. We appreciate that a whole appreciate bunch. That, uh, yeah, that's amazing to hear. So Thank you again so much, Pat, and uh, to our listeners. Until next time, adios. Adios. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today and listening to this episode. If this episode did help you, then be sure to share it with someone else who needs to hear it. If you want to be a guest on the podcast or are looking for additional help on your journey to find more wealth, scale, and freedom in your AEC company, visit our AEC resources page at spotmigration.com backslash AEC hyphen resources. resources.